Hey everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. This is your host, Natasha Bajima, fiction author, national security expert, and insectophobe. You're listening to episode four. First off, I have a personal update. I have just finished my second draft of Project Gecko. This is book two of the Laura Kingsley series. Um, I'm sending it to my editor on May 1. I'm so thrilled to reach this next step in my writer journey. If you're a writer, you know the constant struggle against the voices in your own head. Even though I've successfully published Bionic Bug, sometimes I worry about whether that was a fluke. Well, I'm about to prove to myself and to you all that I can do it again. I'm also really excited about the story in Project Echo, which delves deeper into Lara's backstory and follows her journey through her grief over her loss of her best friend, Sully. Over the next few months, I'll be writing, rewriting the book several times, and um, I hope to finalize the manuscript in August. I'm planning to release it on Kobo, uh, online retailer, in September, so stay tuned for future updates. Okay, let's talk tech. The headline that caught my attention this week, it is a doozy. It's from April 27 from CNN's website, Police use free genealogy database to track Golden State killer suspect, investigator says. Before I talk about this, I want to make a few points. So for the past decade, most of us have signed up for free Gmail or another online email service. It's free from uh, Google or Hotmail or whatever service you're using. We also interact with Facebook and other social media. Um, So It's really important to understand, if you don't know this already, that these services are not really free. Yes, you don't have to pay for them, but there are costs and some of them are hidden if you're not aware of them. Uh, I can't count the number of times I've downloaded an app or signed up for an online service where I've clicked that little box where I agree to accept terms and conditions without actually reading them. Lots and lots and lots of times, I'll admit I'm one of those people too. I've peeked at them a few times and quickly moved on. So, you know, let's be honest, even if we do read those agreements, they're full of lawyer speak, they're wordy, extremely long, difficult to understand. And that's, I think, why we just click yes and move on. But if you do take the time to read through the terms and conditions that you're signing up to and truly understand their meaning, you probably won't like everything you just signed up for. And so it's important to understand that for many of these online services, you are the product. Yes, you are the product. The company offers you free services because they get something in return from you, something that is extremely valuable, something that is worth investing the money to offer your these free services. That something is data. And we've reached a point in our use of the internet and online services where it's really important for us to become cognizant of the data that we're offering, the data that we're putting out there online that we cannot take back. At least when you're aware of the costs and benefits, you can make the right decisions for yourself. And so I just want to encourage everybody to become a little bit more aware of some of these issues. 
Every time I talk about emerging technologies, which has been a lot in the recent weeks, I poll the audience for the number of people who have sent their DNA samples to companies like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA. To find out more about their gen genetic background, I understand the interest. I do. I'd love to know more about my, my genome. And every time, there are at least a few hands. Uh, less and less. Um, I talk mostly to military audiences and in, in Department of Defense and National Security, we tend to be uh, a lot more paranoid than others. But then I ask them if they've read the terms and conditions and you can guess the answer. No, not really. It's important to understand that when you submit your DNA sample to these companies and you click that box, you agree to terms and conditions, you're giving them ownership of that sample. They can sell it, they can add that uh, data to a database, but you need to remember that's, that's your genome. You don't have another genome. You can't change your genome. You, like a credit card, when a credit card gets stolen, you can get a new credit card and start over. You can't start over with your genome. So let's go back to the headline. Um, police think that they may have caught the Golden State Killer who was believed to be responsible for killing at least 12 people and raping more than 50 women back in the 1970s and 1980s. They used the GED match database to match DNA they found at the crime scene, uh, basically, uh, to hit to the, their suspect. So what is this GED match database? This is a free-to-use, publicly accessible online database. This is not like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA. It's not a paid service. You go on, you can enter your own DNA profile that you've received from these other paid services to find possible long-lost family members. So that, what did the police do? They, they entered the DNA that they thought was from the killer into the database to locate potential matches and were able to identify uh, at least 100 users that were matched as distant relatives to the potential killer. Think about that for a second. How, how are they doing that? Well, that's because there's a very, very small difference between your genome and the genome, for example, of your parents or the genome of your brothers and sisters, grandparents. So they had more than 100 users. So they began contacting these distant relatives of the potential killer. They didn't know who the killer was. They didn't have a name. After about four months of studying online family trees, they came up with the name Joseph James D'Angelo, 17-year-old, 72-year-old man, as the potential suspect for the Golden, Gates, uh, Golden State Killer. They retrieved a discarded DNA sample from his garbage, so by the way, garbage is free for the taking, and matched it to the culprit's DNA, so they think they have actually found the killer. This genealogy database is yet another example of us offering up our data without thinking about the long-term consequences. I feel like we're coming to an interesting, scary turning point in our history of the use of the internet where we're going to start to experience some of the long-term consequences. If you want um, a movie that might help you understand some of the long-term implications, especially when combined with um, CRISPR gene editing, you should watch the film Gattaca. It's a 1990s film with Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke. And although the film is mostly about designer babies versus, natu versus naturally born babies, which is also an interesting topic for today, in the film, the health insurance and employment decisions are made based on the presence of certain health risks, health, health risks illuminated by your genome. 
And the basic premise of the movie is that your DNA is not your destiny. And this is true. Even if you're predisposed to a certain disease, it does not mean that you'll come down with it. There are other factors involved. For example, your lifestyle and the environment that you live in. So if you're interested in learning more about the risks posed by our personal data, I recommend reading the book Future Crimes by Mark Goodman. It's a New York Times bestseller. Mark Goodman is a former FBI agent. It is an amazing book. I've read it several times. Um, you should probably not read this before you go to bed. Okay, I think I have rambled on long enough. Um, let's um, get to the reading. So where do we leave off last time? In chapter three. Lara goes after Sully, who she saw on the stands operating some sort of device, and he's interacting with her drones, or at least she thinks so. She finds him out in the quarter in the baseball stadium. Um, he's stumbling around as if he's drunk or sick. She follows him down a dark hallway and finds him convulsing uh, right before he dies. She, he tries to talk to her and give her his keys. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 4. The Townhouse Her motorcycle waited for her on the side street next to the ballpark. Lara took off her baseball cap and packed it along with her glove in the seat compartment, shoved her helmet on, and climbed onto the bike. Revving the engine for a few minutes, she plugged in the location of Sully's townhouse into the GPS on her dashboard and inched away from the curb. Giving the bike throttle, she raced down South Capitol at high speed which usually sent a thrill up her spine. This time, a hardened sense of determination came over her. She'd never been involved with a criminal investigation before, but she was not about to let the bastard responsible for killing her friend get away with it. Fifteen minutes later, she pulled her bike into the narrow alley behind Sully's townhouse. Recently painted and renovated, it looked so inviting. He'd purchased the fixer-upper before the area became some of the hottest real estate in town, and it was now worth upwards of $900,000. Guilt pricked at Lara for having been jealous of his good fortune. What good is all that now? She hoped the keys she took from Sully would open the back door. Neighbors might notice her coming through the front, and the last thing she needed was some old lady calling the cops. Lara dismounted her bike in a nook behind Sully's fenced yard and hung her black helmet on the handlebar. The alley was dark, quiet, and empty. In the distance, the rhythmic wail of a police siren echoed through the night air. As she walked through the gate, Lara wrinkled her nose at the sharp odor of rotting garbage mixed with a hint of motor oil. Pairs of green garbage and blue recycling bins lined the alley, set out in time for pickup the next day. Sully's bins were notably absent. He must have forgotten to put them out. As Laura unlatched the gate, her foot accidentally kicked a hard object laying on the brick-paved surface of the alley. She grimaced as a beer, glass beer bottle tumbled down the slope, making loud, rattling noises as, as it went. So much for stealth. She ducked into the backyard and closed the gate quietly, hoping no one heard the bottle. Inside the fence, Sully's refuse containers laid sideways on the overgrown grass, and the garbage was strewn about the backyard. Someone was here, looking for Sully's trash, but what were they looking for? As she searched through the several sticky items on the ground, a crinkling sound came from the green bin at the far end of the yard. When it quivered, Lara jumped. She instinctively grabbed for her gun 
before remembering again that it remained locked away in her safe at home. On high alert, she inscribed closer to the bin. Just before she reached the can, an orange-striped cat bolted from behind the trash. Lara's body tensed. The cat made a beeline for the mulberry tree next to the balcony and scampered into the leaf cover above. Lara let out a shaky breath. Scaredy cat. Her heart pounding, Lara stepped lightly around the garbage remnants to avoid getting anything on her shoes. Sally's brick townhouse had three floors plus a basement. The new light gray paint matched the charcoal cast iron railings of the first and second floor balconies. Lars strode up the stairs to the first floor entrance, keys in hand. The door was open to crack. This is a bad idea. She pushed the door with the tip of her shoe, wishing she had her pistol. Well, it's not exactly breaking and entering if the door is unlocked. She wasn't above bending the rules. Sometimes there was a difference between right and wrong and what was legal or illegal. She'd learned the hard way that the two didn't always mesh up. When it came to breaking the law, she relied on her own moral compass to guide her in making the right decision. As she stepped inside, Lara gasped. The townhouse was in shambles, everything overturned. Whoever broke into Sally's house had searched everywhere and left nothing untouched. Food covered the floor, cupboards stood wide open, and dishes were spread all over the counter. Lara wondered if the intruder had found whatever they were looking for. But did they find Sally's safe room? Sally's specialty as a private investigator involved helping the police hunt and catch the worst of the worst. After a case in which he'd helped authorities apprehend a jihadist cell, planning a bomb attack on the D.C. subway, he'd received several death threats from the organization's leadership, making him understandably paranoid. When Sully renovated the townhouse a few years ago, he made sure to install a fortified safe room, complete with its own weapons cache, office space, bathroom, and sleeping area. Sully hired Lara to install the surveillance electronics and Vic to hardwire the room for high-speed internet access and to program the system. From the monitors in the safe room, Sully could monitor the entire townhouse and its exterior perimeter. Whenever he felt off about a job, Sully would use the space as his main office. Lara walked into the library, a large room with oak hardwood floors and antique trim at the back of the townhouse, just off of the kitchen. Lined with wall-to-wall oak bookshelves, Sully's library contained everything from the classics of American literature to computer programming instruction manuals and even a few self-help books. There were books scattered near the entrance of the library, but the intruder hadn't spent much time there. Most of the books were left untouched. Lara breathed a sigh of relief. They must not have known about the safe room. Maybe I can find a few clues to figure out what Sully got himself into, what got him killed. Facing the center bookshelves on the black wall, back wall, she scanned the shelves meticulously alphabetized for the book iRobot, a collection of short stories by Isaac Asimov. She knew the general location, but still had to search several rows. There it is. If someone knew about Sully's penchant for order, the book would look oddly out of place stuck in the middle of Asimov's Foundation science fiction series. Tilting the book's spine toward the ceiling, she felt underneath for a hidden button. When her fingers found it, she pressed hard. The button clicked, and two bookshelves creaked as they swung outward, exposing a steel door with an electronic combination keypad. 
Hopefully Sully hadn't changed the combo since the last time she had upgraded the surveillance system. Laura entered the code from memory, and to her relief, the door lock released. Once she entered the safe room, she pulled the steel door shut and pressed the lock button on the wall. From inside the safe room, she could hear the faint sound of the bookshelves creak once more as they hit the door. Constructed of reinforced concrete and lined with corrugated steel walls, the interior of the safe room was rather austere. Sally designed it to ensure safety and survival rather than comfort. There were three rooms, Sally's office and command center, a small bedroom, and a storage space which contained a bunk bed for sleeping, supplies, and a weapons cache. Lara could tell that Sully had left the safe room in a hurry. On the desk next to his computer, there was an unfinished cup of coffee, a half-eaten bologna sandwich, and an empty plastic container. A bank of high-res monitors lined the wall behind his computer. From here, she could see every room in Sully's townhouse, including the front and back porches. Lara sat in the leather office chair and brushed her fingers across the touch screen to wake the computer. The login screen appeared, and a red light shone on the desktop in front of her, revealing a holographic keyboard. Lara typed in the username and password she'd used to set up Sully's system. After a few seconds, the screen display appeared and showed a strange web browser. It read Tor in the upper hand left-hand corner with an onion icon in place of the letter O. Across the top of the website, she read, this browser is configured to use Tor. Lara moved the cursor over the search bar. She'd heard that name before. Maybe Vic? She needed to know more. His phone rang three times before he picked up. Hey boss, cops are still here, but not much has changed. Still have eyes on that remote? Don't worry, I've got it handled. Did you find anything? Vic asked. Maybe. Could you tell me what Tor is again? The browser for the dark web, Vic said. I told you about that several months ago. You know I wasn't paying attention, Vic. She could hear him take a deep breath. Can you tell me about the dark web again, please? Okay. You need to picture a giant iceberg floating in the ocean. What you see above the surface of the water is the World Wide Web, which is visible to everyone and indexed by search engines. This portion is only a tiny fragment of the entire network. The deep web... I thought you said it was the dark web before. Vic sighed audibly. No... I'm talking about the deep web to help you understand how everything is connected. It's what makes up the majority of the internet and lies beneath the ocean's surface. The deep web refers to any encrypted website with restricted access. Lara wrinkled her brow and squinted, trying to understand. But I don't have Tor, and I access my banking site all the time. Vic responded to her question with another sigh. Most of the sites on the deep web are accessible using a web browser including your bank account, health records, and anything password protected, he said. Buried within the deep web is the dark web. It is a collection of websites that are not indexed by conventional search engines, but accessible through Tor onion routing. Onion routing? Lara scratched her forehead. Messages sent using Tor have several layers of encryption, like the layers of an onion. The encrypted message is transmitted through a series of nodes in the network called onion routers. Kind of like internet servers, Lara asked. Yes. When users sign up for Tor, their computers can become part of the dark web network as volunteer nodes for data transmission. Tor traffic bounces through the network of computers owned by Tor users to disguise the physical location and identity of the real user. 
When a message is sent, each of the routers peel away a layer of the encryption until the message is decrypted at the final destination. The sender remains anonymous because each node only knows the locations of the nodes immediately preceding and following itself. A large share of the websites on the dark web are shady and sell drugs, guns, hacking services, or other illegal wares. What would Sully want with shady websites, Lara asked. I don't know, boss, but a cop is waving at me. I have to go. The phone went silent. What were you doing on the dark web, Sully? Lara stared aimlessly at the monitors. As a private detective, she avoided engaging with the deep, dark underworld. Most of the time, she didn't have to. Whereas Sully thrived in hunting down dangerous criminals, Lara preferred to work straightforward surveillance jobs, which included everything from locating and removing unwanted forms of electronic surveillance to installing covert eavesdropping services for law enforcement agencies. Everything was legal, or at least legal-ish, but many of her clients had big names and would pay even bigger money for discretion. She tried to find Sully's browsing history, but couldn't uncover anything beyond the search bar. She guessed Tor didn't have browsing history. After all, that would defeat the whole purpose of anonymity, right? She'd have to ask Vic about it later. Only Sully would be able to tell her what he had searched for, and he wasn't talking anymore. Lara sat for a few minutes trying to figure out what to do next. I should check the video surveillance tapes. Lara smacked her forehead, irritated she didn't think about it immediately. If she searched the video footage, she could see what Sully had been up to before he died. Clicking on the control room app on Sully's desktop, Lara loaded the video archive and selected the most recent video file for the library. After a few seconds, the file opened to reveal only static and black dots with white noise in the background. That's odd. Lara pressed reversed and watched the timer race backwards. Several days went by without any images, just more static. Someone must have tampered with the video system. Just as she slowed to a stop, an image of Sully appeared on the screen. Lara reduced the speed of the rewind to go back a few more frames and then press play. Sully exited his safe room, carrying a small cardboard box. He walked back and forth in his library as if lo looking for a hiding spot. He appeared disoriented and unsteady. Then he looked up into the surveillance camera as if remembering he was being recorded. His bloodshot eyes were filled with dread. Was he drunk? Sick? What's going on? Lara watched as he stumbled from the living room into the front hall. Determined to know where Sully had gone with the box, she searched the video archives for footage from the other cameras. But all the footage turned up static. Not one clear image from the time frame she needed to see. Drumming her fingers on the keyboard, Lara stared at the nearly empty desk and thought of the many occasions she'd seen Sully have a stack of his active case files next to his computer. His desk is too tidy. She looked down at the computer's touchscreen. A tiny piece of white paper peeking out from underneath its base caught her attention. It had been well camouflaged against the shiny white surface of his desk. She slid the paper out. The word Killerbot scrawled across it. Was this your screen name or something else? Watson, Lara spoke into her smartphone. Her screen lit up with an image of a man with a thick beard and mustache. Yes, Miss Kingsley? How may I be of assistance to you this evening? Watson replied in a sing-song English accent. She named her AI voice assistant after Sherlock Holmes' famous sidekick and customized him to sound overly polite and cooperative. 
It made it easier for her to work with a computer. Otherwise, she'd start arguing, speaking too fast, and lo then lose her patience with the muddled response. She still didn't trust AI with any complex queries. Lara took a picture of the paper with her smartphone. I found this piece of paper in Sully's safe room. What does it mean? Lara said and waited for an answer. That's quite an odd query, Miss Kingsley. Watson paused for several seconds. Based on my comparative analysis of the writing in the photo and your files on the cloud, the handwriting sample belongs to Mr. Phil Sullivan, API, and your best friend. Belonged. Lara swallowed hard and suppressed an intense surge of emotion. The literal meaning of the word killerbot is a small robot designed to kill people, which are illegal in the United States, Watson continued. However, in this context, I believe the word is most likely a pseudonym for communicating over the dark web. Unfortunately, you have disabled my ability to search the dark web. With your authorization, I can change the settings now and look further. That's what I thought. No, that's okay. Thanks, Watson. My pleasure. The smartphone screen went dark. Lara left the piece of paper on the desk for the cops to find. She'd have Vic search the dark web for any references to the word when she returned to her office. Lara combed the rest of the area but found the desk drawers and the tall filing cabinet empty. Sully was obsessed with keeping detailed records. Where are all the case files he kept here? He typically used written logs to record his prolific notes. If she could get her hands on the most recent journal, she might be able to find out who wanted him dead. Someone must have cleaned both out. But who? Obviously, the house had been tossed, but the intruder didn't make it into the safe room. Had there been a second intruder? Or had Sully cleaned out the safe file, the files himself? That thought kept repeating in her mind. If he had cleaned out his records, it could only mean one thing. You felt your safe room was compromised. But where did you put your records? As she peeked over the edge of the top file drawer, a tiny glint in the back corner of the drawer caught her eye. She grabbed the footstool from underneath the desk and placed it next to the cabinet. Even with the stool, she needed to stand on her tiptoes to reach all the way to the back corner. Lara reached inside and found a small metal box held in place by a magnet. Carefully, she slid the box toward her with the tip of her finger until she could grasp it. She slid the top off to find a key engraved with the number D110. She looked around the office for a lock that the key might open, but it didn't match any of the keyholes in the office. Lara tucked it away in her pocket. She put the full stool away. As she headed toward the door, she spotted a business card stuck under the corner of the filing cabinet. Getting down on her hands and knees, she slipped the card out with her fingernails. It named a Dr. Anton Stepanov at DARPA as Director of Robotics Research. Between the card and the forged ID, there was a good chance the renowned defense agency had something to do with all of this. She made a note on her smartphone to pay Dr. Stepanov a visit. In the storage room, the sleeping area appeared to be untouched, with blankets neatly folded on the bottom bunk. Next to the bed stood an oak cabinet with glass doors holding Sully's weapons cachet. The pristine glass bore no marks of any kind, no smudges, fingerprints, or scratches. She tried to open the door, but it was locked, and the key in her pocket didn't match. She opened the metal lockers stationed up against the wall. They were fully stocked with bottled water, canned food, other non-perishable items, and medical supplies. The shelving unit next to the lockers contained a small hot plate, pots and pans, tools, 
a hand crank radio, and board games. A fold-up table and two chairs stood in the corner. Lara walked into the bathroom to find the toilet seat left up. Typical man. The bathroom was spotless and the shower dry, leaving her no clues about Sally's last few days. She glanced at the toilet again. Nature was calling. She shrugged, put the seat down, and answered the call. When you gotta go. She grabbed a handful of toilet paper and pondered her next move. Then something light tickled her forehead and crawled up into her hair. What's that? She reached up, expecting it to swat away a fly. Lara sat up a bit straighter to see into the mirror on the wall across from her and yelped. She nearly fell off the toilet. Something like a large bug moved in a circle on her head. She jumped up from the toilet, pulled up her pants, and ran into the office. Lara frantically danced around, trying to shake it off. Instinctual terror shot through her veins as she imagined it crawling down her back. She dug her fingers into her hair, shaking it out and patting it down. The bug was no longer there. In a frenzy, she searched her clothes in every inch of the room to see if the bug had fallen on the floor. It was nowhere to be found. Cautiously, she inched back into the bathroom. Behind the toilet, she caught a glimpse of the huge, metallic, golden-colored beetle. Its wings buzzed as it inched slowly toward her and stopped at her feet. She got the impression it was staring up at her. Well, now that's odd. Trembling but insanely curious, she bent down to get a better look. She'd never seen a beetle like this one. She had never seen a beetle so large. But it was also stunningly beautiful for a bug. The golden beetle had hints of green, brown, and red on its iridescent body. But something else struck her as out of the ordinary. Nearly camouflaged by its color, the beetle wore a tiny backpack with circuits and wires. Is that? She couldn't believe her eyes. On top of the green circuit board was a small disc with a tiny aperture. The miniature camera was smaller than her pinky fingernail. Her heart skipped a beat. Someone's watching me. Remembering the plastic container, she ran back to the desk and returned to the bathroom. Getting down on her hands and knees, Lara held the container and the lid with her sweaty hands. Now comes the tricky part. Lara's hands shook, but she used the lid to lift the body of the beetle upwards just enough to flick it into the container. Then she pressed the lid down tightly to seal it shut and breathed a sigh of relief. In spite of her military training, Lara reacted to bugs with intense fear, something she blamed on a traumatic experience during her childhood. At five years old, Lara had been sitting on her mother's lap when a beetle crawled down her forehead to rest on the end of her tiny nose. Ever since, she suffered from a bad case of entomophobia, something her team in Afghanistan had way too much fun with. You're not getting out of there anytime soon. Her phone vibrated in her pocket. Hey, Vic, Tor doesn't have a browser history, right? No. She gave herself a mental a high five. Awesome, I... Boss, the cops really want to talk to you. They're demanding you come down to the station right away. Yeah, uh... A shadow crossed one of the monitors, drawing Lara's attention. Within seconds, several dark forms appeared on the screen for the front porch. Vic, I've got company. Tell them I'll get there as soon as I can. Five armed men wearing familiar navy blue jackets with yellow FBI lettering were on the front landing. Now what are they doing here?
Okay, let's go behind the scenes. So um, for the background details, I have some personal notes and some technical notes. So the first question is, why did I choose a beetle or a bug as the object of horror in my first book? Um, and that really comes down to um, the fact that my first, my earliest childhood memory involves a beetle. So my first memory as a child dates back to my third year. I was playing in my sandbox in the backyard and a giant beetle entered my sandbox. I remember being paralyzed with fright. It was about the size of my fist, at least that's how I remember it, but I was three, so it might be quite close to that. Everything is relative. Anyway, I panicked and ran to my mom screaming in terror. Um, she had to take a shovel, scoop it out, and toss it into our neighbor's yard. And I think even then, I refused to play in the sandbox for some time. I have actually been somewhat terrified of insects ever since. I think that just goes to show the power of our early childhood memories. Um, so I've gotten better in time. Uh, now, if it's not too big, I can remove it. But most recently, a couple of years ago, I went to South Africa and there's all sorts of large bugs in South Africa. And when I was just getting into my, I was living in the bush for two weeks and I just get into my cabin and there was a spider, this time also the size of my fist, for real, the size of my grown-up fist. Um, and uh, I freaked out, ran out of the cabin, asked one of the scientists to come help me. And he went in, picked up the spider, came out outside the hut with it on his hand. It was one of the, you know, harmless spiders, but it was huge. Um, and I was mocked for the next two weeks. Um, so that, that plays a role in uh, the story of Laura Kingsley, because she's also deadly afraid of spiders. So let's turn to the technical side of things. Um, why bionic bug? The idea for my first story in the Laura Kingsley series came to me um, as part of my job. I was looking through lists of emerging technologies for my research uh, in 2016, and I came across an article published in 2009 by the MIT Technology Review about a remote-controlled beetle being developed by scientists at the University of California for the U.S. Army and funded by DARPA to support surveillance and search and rescue missions. So this notion of a flying beetle being controlled by a human operator immediately captured my imagination. And so the story of a mad scientist developing a bionic bug to cause mayhem was born. Not going to spoil that for you. But so why are we seeing this happen? Well, advances in microelectronics, in particular, the miniaturization of microprocessors and batteries have made it possible to create insect computer hybrids. Um, call them bionic bugs. You can call them cyborgs cyborg beetles. These blend the beetle's natural capabilities um, with the capabilities of machines. So why are we doing this? Why not just do micro bots um, made fully out of machines? Well, that's because beetles have several advantages over, um, well, other insects and their electronic alternatives like micro drones. First, beetles require only a small amount of energy to power the microelectronics. They use their own energy to fly. They don't run out of energy mid-flight. They can replenish their energy supply simply by consuming food. Drones of the same size require far more energy to produce, um, to basically to stabilize their flight. Um, and small drones can only carry tiny batteries and that limits their flight time and range. And you don't have that with a live beetle. Second, beetles are heavier than other insects. They can carry heavier payloads. Um, 
So in addition to the microelectronics package, beetles can carry small heat sensors or cameras to support surveillance or search and rescue missions. And then finally, um, with, with the exception of tiny microelectronics packages and electrodes, there's no assembly required. Beetles come fully assembled. Um, of course, the downside of using beetles instead of micro drones is their limited lifespan. So I based the, the microelectronics package in Project Gecko on one being developed by the University of California and the National Technical University of Singapore. It looks like a tiny backpack. It contains a microprocessor, a radio receiver, battery, circuit board, and six electrodes. Um, I'll include a picture of it in the notes and some links. Um, so how does it work? Uh, electrical signals are delivered via the electrodes to command the beetle to take off, turn left and right, hover and land. The commands are sent over a radio frequency transmitter from a nearby laptop. Um, for the first time in 2015, scientists managed to control the flight of cyborg beetles. Although they'd previously understand this potential, it took some additional study to enable um, the control of free-flying beetles within a laboratory environment. So that's all I have for today. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.